You are about to listen to Perfume on the Radio, a periodic radio show and podcast where we explore the world through the lens of scent. It smells good, Mom. Make any space the space. Whiffers. Do you suffer from scent anesthesia? In March of 2023, the Institute for Art and Olfaction took part in a delegation to Qatar through the good works of the Qatar America Institute for Culture. There was a lot to see in Qatar and a lot to talk about. So much so, in fact, that I've dedicated this episode of Perfume on the Radio to the artists, perfumers, and business people that we met there. Here, then, is an audio exploration of what me and my co-workers learned about Qatari scent culture. A quick note that some of the music from this episode was sourced from the Qatar Digital Library, which is a collaboration between the Qatar National Library and the British Library, and has some very cool open access media, including music. My name is Saskia Wilson-Brown, and I'm excited to bring you along on a trip to Qatar via the magic of audio. Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Doha, the state of Qatar. We have just landed at Hamad International Airport, the five-star gateway to Qatar, the Gulf, and the rest of the world. After a very long flight, sweaty and miserable me was waiting in the line at customs when a young lady wearing a long black robe known as an abaya looked at me, disheveled as I was, and asked me where I was from. I said I was from the U.S., and she smiled broadly, and then she ushered me in front of her in line and said, welcome to Qatar. When I tell that story now, it sounds a little bit like one of those corny travel stories that people trot out when they want to convey that people around the world, shock, horror, are just as nice as people at home. But I share it because it was sweet and unexpected enough that it stuck with me. And with hindsight, it also served as an appropriate introduction to the norm that I encountered in the country. There are many stereotypes about the Gulf states, and one of them is the warmth of their welcome. And while each and every human being is a unique knot of influences, psychologies, and etc., and believe me, there are jerks everywhere, I did find that the Qataris I encountered in my wanders through Doha were, generally speaking, pretty laid-back and friendly. But back to the airport. Sweaty and grumpy, I stepped out of the airport into Doha. That's a really special moment, as anyone who travels will attest, and I always try to take a second when I get somewhere new to close my eyes and just focus on my olfactory and audio impressions. In this case, the smell was wet, moist air, with a bit of that special ocean tang that is so hard to capture in perfumery. A smidge of watery undeca vertol, a bit of salty calone, a hint of earthy geosmin, a bit of seaweed, and, you know, it's a city after all. The pungent tang of human activity. Cars, airplane fuel, and a lot of perfume. A cacophony of perfume, in fact, but more on that in a minute. Doha is a city in flux, and walking through the more modern parts of the city means walking through construction barriers, half-laid pavements, gleaming sky-rises yet to meet their occupants. It's dizzying, all that newness. And over and over again, Qataris that I met expressed a sort of living nostalgia and a sense of wonder at how quickly their capital was changing in front of them. 
It's kind of hard to imagine, but try to imagine what it's like to live in a place that has gone from a population of just over 36,000 people in 1960 to a population of 2.7 million people in 2022. That's a growth of over 2,600,000 people in a span of time that is shorter than my parents' lifetime. To talk about this, I invited Fatima Aldosari to tell us a bit about her experience growing up in Doha. Fatima was born and raised in Qatar before coming to the States to pursue postgrad degrees at the University of Pennsylvania and Georgetown. As you might imagine, all this international education has strengthened her passion for cultural understanding, and to that end, she serves as the director at Qatar America Institute for Culture in Washington, D.C., where she works towards cross-cultural partnerships between the two countries. We covered a lot in our conversation, but before I got started, I had a very important question for her. Is it Qatar or Qatar? You know, in Arabic, it's Qatar, so none of the syllables exist in the in the English language. This is why it's always difficult to kind of standardize it as a Qatar or Qatar or whatever rolls more naturally in your tongue. There we go. Now we can start our chat in earnest. I started our conversation by asking Fatima about her experience living between Qatar and Washington, D.C., specifically about the changes that she noticed when she went home to Doha. Here is Fatima. This is a really interesting question, uh, Saskia, and thank you for asking, because it's kind of a question between what's real and what's, you know, ideal. As Qatar changed the past 25 years, home, it's within the people who I, you know, I'm connected with, my family members, my friends, my acquaintances, because Qatar, as I know, it changed. Mm -hmm. So whenever I I go back to Qatar, I'm really excited like to explore the new Qatar. Things are exploding and changing ever since Qatar won the bid for hosting, you know, the World Cup it was last year. If you remember, we went and visited as part of our delegation uh tour Liwan and we met with artist Aisha Sawedi. I truly resonate with her idea of home and how it's more about nostalgia for us, like witnessed the beautiful, you know, evolving change of Qatar the last 25 years. So to me, when I go back to Qatar, as I said, it's about seeing this openness to the world and how things between the global and the local are kind of merging together to create Qatar as it is today. And has that changed since you were a kid? Do you feel like Qatar is more globally open now uh, in your experience? Yeah, for sure. I I remember back in in the 90s when like McDonald's opened um, and it's like a big kind of national event where cars lined up in a drive-through to order because everyone was excited about having this American brand opening in Doha. Today, we have this international presence of all the brands and the names. And as you saw, like everything was in Qatar, very bilingual. People are surprised that they can speak more English or other languages in Qatar than, than Arabic. So it's not totally surprising, you know, to see how global and international Qatar is because the country's ambition and vision is, is very global. Yeah. But the beautiful thing I, I think that makes Qatar unique is that it still maintains its traditions and its identity and its heritage. And, and this is why I'm always proud, you know, of Qatar being different. Yeah. Well, so on on that topic, I mean, uh, nevertheless, you know, you've you've witnessed great change. So 
for instance, I remember when we were there, we were driving by a, um, there was like a shopping mall and I think there was a Dairy Queen or something like that. And you said, oh, I used to hang out there as a kid. And it made me think about this sort of sense of both hanging on to the heritage and the tradition, but also a sense of loss. So um, are there any spots that you remember when you were a kid that you find are are disappearing or evolving maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Um, roundabouts, you know, don't are non-existent. Like being in a roundabout was an experience in itself, seeing how cars merge from one place to another. And also Qatar used to be very landmark oriented. So you would spatially navigate through the landmarks. Like you would say um, the post office roundabout or there's a roundabout called crazy roundabout. You know, so there were landmarks in Qatar, but now, you know, with, with the change in that, it just changed a lot about the landscape of the country. Mm. But there was one location that as a kid, I really enjoyed. It's called Palm Island, Jazeera Tanakhil. And the the thing that as kids we really loved was that it it also was a, a reference to a TV show when we were kids, like a cartoon. Today, like you can see the the island completely like a desert scape. But when we were kids, we used to take like um and it was like an event during eight days. We take a one of the Dows, if you remember, on the Corniche. Yeah. And we take them to Palm Island. We spend the day there swimming and having picnics with my grandma and my family. That changed. Actually, my own neighborhood changed and evolved. It used to be a complete desert landscape where we used to go truffle hunting during uh, winter season uh, in our backyard and find hedgehog and this, you know, all kind of wildlife, camels. Like we, we, we saw that in our backyard. So it's really beautiful and also kind of perplexing experience to witness everything changing around you. It's really exhilarating. What was Qatar uh, like for your grandparents? Like, how would they have lived and how how has that shifted today? This is a very interesting question because our grandparents' time and their experiences felt very, I would say, disconnected from the newer generation. Mm -hmm. They feel it was a time of hardship sometimes. They don't want to burden the newer generations and sharing these. But there's also the other side of when they feel they want to share the more simple ways of life. So you have like both views. But at least I would say for my family, my grandma, particularly from my mother's side, the more intrigued she she saw us, and especially that I'm I'm very curious. I've done research with uh, University College London in Doha for a project called Origins of Doha. And I did like more than 14 interviews where I interviewed people, men and women who lived the pre-oil time in Qatar. And it was really, really exciting like to hear different views that were very parallel to my grandma's. I, I feel a lot of our ancestors they're, they were a little bit confused, you know, those who witnessed the change between like the Ottoman Empire then to the British, you know, colonization, because many of them, you know, lived during that time and they saw the changes on how things were. Mm. Like I discovered through conversations with my grandma that she had a, um, a visually impaired grandma who was also an entrepreneur, a businesswoman who sold uh, batulas, like the, the gold face mask, if you remember. Of course. 
Yeah. So she used to make them at home and take them on a journey to the villages up north in, in Qatar. And that required like a whole day trip. Right now, it will take you 20 minute like car ride to get there. Wow. She used to go first on a dhow from the harbor in Doha. And then she took a donkey. Wow. You know, it took her like a whole day from sunrise to sunset. And then they sleep over in Al-Khur after they get there from their Dow trip. And then the next morning, they go on this donkey trip to the little villages and they sell to the women in, in the villages. And as I said, like my grandma's grandma was visually impaired. So my grandma, who was illiterate, but she was able to do simple accounting. So she was a little accountant for her own grandma. I felt very inspired, like when my grandma shared the story with me, because the traditional narrative is that women are either like brides or traditional Quran, like school, Mm -hmm. knowing that women do have other roles was really important to me because I wanted to see a continuation of our roles as women in in society. And it's not just that I'm, you know, different. It it comes from a historical narrative of a lot of women pioneers. Yeah, well, that's amazing because things have changed. Obviously, they've gotten easier in some ways, but then also there's a continuity of pioneering women because you are also a pioneering woman. So that's really cool to hear about. So I guess my my last question for you then, Fatima, is is there anything that you think that uh, you would like to share about Qatari culture that you think often gets overlooked in the larger world view? This is honestly a great question. And I thank you for it. I think overall, people really focus on Qatar's recent history. They don't think where, you know, the country comes from and that it's really rich with its values and heritage and tradition and inspiring spirit, not necessarily only, you know, with the natural wealth of like liquefied natural gas. Mm -hmm. The country is very small with its size and, and its population, but it's very big with its ambition. Like Qatar played a huge role when it comes to mediation between a lot of conflicts And I feel very proud of that. And I really hope that people will be open, you know, to visit and experience things themselves. It's not very common that they get to meet locals, you know, when they go to Qatar. But if they look very closely, they get to meet them. Again, because we're a small population, we tend to be more reserved. But once people feel more comfortable and trusting to, to others, they move out from that kind of muted group you know, Mm -hmm. uh, set up to something more open and they open their homes, they invite you to weddings and nothing can be more intimate than inviting a a stranger to come to someone's house. Yeah. I would just love for people to go experience Qatar as you did, uh, firsthand, um, and for, for them just to learn more about the culture and people. Yeah. And, and I will say I, um, I was very, very pleasantly, not surprised, but I, it was a very pleasant experience walking around Doha and feeling like people were generally pretty welcoming. And, it, and it's also very international. So it's a very comfortable place, you know, and I think maybe that's something that I didn't know to expect uh, before I went. I'm really glad you felt that because a lot of, as I said, like people try to navigate and understand what is the national identity of Qatar versus like it's, you know, regional identity as an Arab country or it's um, religious identity as also a Muslim country and all the mix of that all together because it's a melting pot, you know, so... I'm glad you got to experience that. And I'm really excited for our journey together to see the reflections and interpretations this fall, inshallah. 
That was the lovely Fatima Aldasari, director of Qatar America Institute for Culture, or CAKE for short. I should say that I tried really hard to find the cartoon she spoke about in reference to Palm Island, but I failed. So instead, we'll have to settle for this lovely little number, not from Qatar, not from her youth, still pretty charming. Qatar is a country that is noticeably diverse, and walking the streets and markets of Doha, you see people from all over the world. I met folks from the Philippines, Punjabi people from Pakistan and India, Kenyans, Malaysians, people from Thailand and China, Sudanese people, Tunisians, Omanis, Saudi Arabians, Kuwaitis, Emiratis, and so many more. As for the Qataris, while they constitute only 10% of the country's population, they themselves are a diverse mix descended from the nomadic Bedouin tribes or the settled city dwellers, and sometimes from the pearl divers of the past centuries. One thing that this huge group of people have in common is religion. And specifically, that religion is Islam. For full disclosure, I am not Muslim. I have an outsider's perspective and as such can never even pretend to understand the complexity of faith. But one thing I can do is read, and I've spent some time researching sent references in the Quran and some of the Hadith. So with all this in mind, I was pretty excited when we were invited to the Quranic Botanic Gardens. Our guide there was a gregarious Egyptian named Muhammad who shared plants mentioned in the Quran or in the Hadith. We had sweet flag, calamus, balm of Gilead, several types of ginger, along with other notable and sometimes surprising materials such as the toothbrush root and sidra, or desert apple. Here to tell us more about this experience is Razwan Ulhaq. If you've listened to past episodes, you'll remember Raswan from our episode called Al-Kalima is the Word, talking about Arabic calligraphy. He is an artist and a calligrapher based in Bradford, England, and I asked him to reflect on his experience visiting the Quranic Botanic Gardens. Here is Raswan. I felt particularly humbled by the experience there, I mean, especially the way the aromas sort of mixed together like an orchestra. There, there seemed to be a harmony there, mm-hmm. and there wasn't one scent or one colour that was overpowering the others and that was lovely. We were actually in the shade of that beautiful Grand Mosque as well. I mean what an absolutely wonderful, wonderful gem in the Gulf. Yeah, that was something I was going to actually say because there was this uh, sort of visual juxtaposition between these really well-tended and carefully prepared gardens and this super beautiful modern like I don't know. It was a minaret, I suppose, just jutting out at the sky uh, diagonally. It was just, it was very sci-fi in a lot of ways, wasn't it? It was, it was, it was. When I first saw it, you think, hmm, interesting. But as soon as the sun began its descent for the twilight or Margaret mm. prayer, it, it was just breathtaking and beautiful. Those sort of very sci-fi lines and nature mm. just together, very peaceful and very beautiful. So in the botanical garden, do you remember any of the smells that we came across? Yeah, first of all, I think as soon as we went in, there was a sort of mingling of lots and lots of sweet, woody sort of scents. The calamus plant, which had a very sort of woody, wet sort of smell, uh, I think in Arabic is uh, adharira, sometimes in other places known as azarira. And it's believed that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was perfumed by that root. Something a bit closer to home. 
but the two types of ginger. I I took it home, made some tea from it. So the first was the calamus plant you mentioned, and and it's also known, I believe, as a sweet flag. Um, and, and and I remember the calamus as well because he gave us a little section of the root, which looked a little bit like a larva. Yeah, and it's really it, it has such an interesting history. I'm not quite sure where, but I'm sure it has some biblical reference. It, it comes up as one of the materials in a holy anointing oil. Um, and yeah. I can read you the I can read you the quote from the Bible if you want. Take following fine spices: five hundred shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much of fragrant cinnamon. 250 shekels of fragrant calamus, etc. So there we go. <laughs> it's amazing you mentioned myrrh. I'm actually, where I'm sitting right now, I was a little bottle of myrrh um, because one of the uh, ancient Arab calligraphers used myrrh to stop his ink from getting fungi. Oh, amazing. And then you mentioned ginger. And I know there were two kinds that we, we saw. We saw like a cooking ginger and a what he called a pine cone ginger. Muhammad called a pine cone or shampoo ginger. What what I really liked about Brother Muhammad was that he 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 sort of was so hands on, wasn't he? Yeah. Talking about hands on and roots, the other lovely smell was the smell of the uh, the root of the miswak tree, the toothbrush tree. Oh yeah. <laughs> now the funny thing is that as soon as um, it was taken out of the ground in front of us, it was the smell that sort of took me back to university times where, sort of, I think it was from India, a gentleman used to sell miswak, same sort of uh, smell. Wow, that's so it triggered that memory from your, your university years. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, and often we forget that perfume sometimes is actually bound with culture. I mean, I mean I'm, what I've been finding interesting for a number of years is that people are so used to smelling, you know, part of the alcohol with the perfume that for some people, if it's not there, you know, it's not perfume. And, and, and similarly with the Miswak tree, it, it would make a great perfume, although <laughs> it's not considered such. And the other one, um, lemongrass. Oh, um, yeah. Lemongrass. Um, I use lemongrass as a, a sort of uh, insect repellent, but also for cleanliness and, uh, and other reasons. The lemongrass they had there, it seemed to be less sort of uh, less sharp mm-hmm. and more lemony. But but yeah, uh, I think everything there. I can remember on the way back, we had a fantastic discussion about, you know, should we leave nature as nature? You know, these these devices sometimes we, we create so that, you know, when the wind is blowing, um, you know, a, a certain scent would overpower it. I can remember that conversation. Yeah, sort of accepting nature on its own terms and not trying to supplement or expand it, right? Mm. Yeah. That, that was really, really interesting. So, Raswan, you know, we mentioned a couple plants. We mentioned sweet flag, um, lemongrass, ginger. And these are all in the garden because they're mentioned in some place in the holy text. So in, in the Quran or in, in certain hadith, as a Muslim... Did experiencing these scents in the garden impact you, you and your faith in any way? Yeah, definitely. I think um, when, when you're reading the Quran, for example, mm-hmm. the Quran talks about the world being symbolic. Now, often what happens is you have interpreters or people who are sitting in a room where they're studying, which is all very well. You know, we do that whenever we're studying history or maths or whatever. You know, we all shut ourselves into a room and then we study it, which is which is fine. But um, I thought that maybe this is what, and, and it's my subjective opinion, of course. Of course. You know, maybe, maybe that's what brings it alive. 
what a wonderful avenue it is to go down, that sort of sitting outside, maybe reciting the Quran or contemplating on the Quran Mm -hmm. in a Quranic garden, to me, seems to be more powerful and and, and memorable and meaningful Mm -hmm. than perhaps sort of just sitting in a room. So I was just thinking how great it would be for, you know, for children growing up or for, you know, people who want to know a little bit more about the religious text to actually go outside and actually see the manifestation of the words they've been reading. And then from that manifestation, other meanings sort of manifest. You're not just engaging with your mind, for example, if you're reading something, but you're engaging with a whole range of senses. Yeah, the sensorial body, which is a, yeah. a different way of of learning and understanding. Yeah, yeah. And I think it would go uh, a long way as well to create a, a sort of what, what in Arabic is known as a bizarre or a, or, or a balance between text and between the world, because the Quran often keeps talking about the phenomenal world. It keeps mm-hmm. talking about the world and signs and the symbolic. I think that will be, you know, sort of very much peaceful for someone to be reading it and experiencing it. Amazing. Expanding out from the, the garden to your whole experience in Qatar, is there one thing that really stuck with you in your time there that you would want to share with people? Yeah, definitely. I thought our hosts were very friendly, particularly hosting us in their home, showing the Qatari culture, how they live, and also talking about how it was like many, many years ago. So that, that sort of friendliness, that was definitely something to be celebrated. You know, often when people think of the Gulf, they think of a place where there's a lot of riches and there's a lot of plastic and sort of huge, you know, shopping centres, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, what I would say is, you know, just just go to the established families there um, Mm -hmm. and and you can see a different picture. So so that definitely was a, a fabulous thing to experience. Yeah, it sound, did it subvert your expectations a little bit? Um, I have sort of, uh, you know, visited the Gulf before, mm-hmm. so I so I do know about the Arabic hospitality. Mm. But I think what was probably surprising was that they had some new things going on, like the Quranic uh, Botanic Gardens. I think that is the way forward, you know, to create something completely new that has such positive messages. That's a springboard for further development. You know, really trying to keep hold of the sort of culture, despite the huge rapid change that's going on. Yeah, that must be challenging to maintain the history while also embracing modernity. Whenever we went, we just kept hearing, you know, people say that, look, this is what we're doing, but we we want to do this as well. So, for example, you know, at the fashion house, um, you know, they were working with some of the biggest European fashion houses. Yet at the same time, they were were talking about, um, you know, Qatari fashion or Arab fashion or Muslim fashion. Yeah. And, and that seemed to be a thread that sort of uh, ran through lots and lots of different wonderful venues that we visited. That was the talented and kind Razwan Ulhaq, who is an artist and calligrapher based in Bradford in the north of England. Not a stereotype, an observation. Scent in Qatar, as in many other Gulf states, is a huge factor of everyday existence. Everywhere, and I mean everywhere, is perfumed. Sometimes it's intentional, as we'll see in a moment, sometimes it's unintentional, but the level of aromatic presence is actually astonishing. 
Something that came up quite a few times actually when I spoke with Qatari people was the fact that since many people wear similar clothing, the little moments of personalization like scent, cufflinks, glasses, watches end up taking on extra importance. Perhaps you're not familiar, so just to review traditional Qatari dress, men tend to wear a long white shirt known as the thobe, which I cannot stress enough is always immaculately pressed and sparkling white, though in the winter they may often choose to wear grey or brown or navy. Some men, particularly men in important government positions, wear an extra layer, a sort of overrobe of sheer grey or warm brown known as a bisht, which sometimes has gold trim. All men in traditional dress wear an embroidered cap, which is covered with a carefully folded scarf, most often white in the hot months, though sometimes in grey or brown and in cashmere in the winter. More rarely, you may see a red and white checked pattern that is more common for the Bedouins or people from other Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and Jordan. This is called the guthra, and it is encircled by a double loop of black cords that trail down the back in long tassels. Women, for their part, are often seen around town wearing a long robe known as an abaya, which covers their clothing beneath. Traditionally, they would wear a long dress underneath, known as a jalabia, but of course these days, people wear whatever they want, often Western clothing. On their heads, many women wear a scarf covering their hair and neck, called a shayla. Some women wear it tightly, some wear it loosely, some choose not to wear it at all. Some women also wear a face covering, or a niqab, which exposes their eyes. Some very observant women wear gloves. It all, of course, depends on the women. Because the clothing can be rather uniform, and because humans are humans and we sure love to express ourselves, there are many tiny, subtle, but meaningful differences in how the clothes are worn. The choice of scarves, for instance, and how they're folded. How the men hold their overrobes. Emiratis put their hands through both armholes, Qataris only through one. But the real meat of personal expression comes through the accessories, and of course, a person's choice of perfume. For that reason and for others, scent is important in the region, and at least in my observation is applied quite liberally. And then, of course, in addition to perfumed oils and sprays, Qatari people are often interacting with clouds and clouds of incense. In the market, in front of shops, in people's homes, on random street corners, you will find big square incense burners in a traditional shape called the makbara, spewing out a thick and fragrant smoke. The material being burnt is called bahur, and bahur is basically a concoction of wood chips that are mixed with natural resins like frankincense and sometimes have been soaked in perfumed oils. These pellets or chunks are placed on a live charcoal, and smoke ensues. Our next guest, Micah Anderson, joined me to talk about how he has experienced bahur in Qatar and in other places. Micah is the co-founder of Udimentary, which is a company he started with Osama Cannon in the early 2000s to collect and distribute beautiful aromatics from around the world. Sadly, Osama passed away a few years ago from ALS. His spirit and his influence linger on strongly in everything that Micah does with Udimentary with his current business partner, Jawad Kawaja. I started my chat with Micah asking him to tell me about how he discovered the world of Oud and Bahur. Here's what he had to say. I had been living on and off in Southeast Asia, and on one of the trips I was in Bangkok, I would go down to the Arab Quarter a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So I'm walking around, and I'm like seeing all this wood chips piled up in the windows of these stores. I'm like, yeah, this must be some kind of medicine, or I don't know. So I wandered into a store at some point, and um, it just happened that I wandered into the right store. And I believe in these moments in time that we kind of are at the right place in the right time. And this is what happened. You know, I walked into the store and I struck up a relationship with a young man who was who was working there, and his family owned the shop, mm. and they eventually became my teachers in this thing called oud. Huh. 
And then I would bring some back and had some friends who were kind of interested in buying it. And we ended up organically starting this company, you know, just kind of slinging, <laughs> slinging oud, just kind of bringing it back from Thailand or from Indonesia or from these different places in Southeast Asia. And then we would sell it. And here we are 20 years later. That's awesome. I love those moments of serendipity that change your life. Well, so you mentioned the scent. So let's talk about the scent. Does all oud smell the same? You know, a lot of times, I think for many perfumers or people interested in perfume, even on a just a basic level, you know, we can become familiar with something called sandalwood. Mm -hmm. It's similar in some ways to sandalwood and different in some ways. So when you have a a tree that has sandalwood in it, all of the tree has sandalwood in it. Mm. What oud is, is this particular species called the Aquilaria, Mm -hmm. and there's maybe 14 or 15 kind of subspecies under that. And what happens is this tree gets an infection, and the infection produces a a reaction to the infection, which makes this resin that starts to grow in the heartwood of the tree. And this resin is essentially what is connected with the scent. So you, you're, you know, you're in the, I don't know, the jungle or someplace and mm. you find this aquilaria tree doesn't necessarily mean that there's oud in it or that there's perfume in it. It has to be infected. Right. So, you know, they have ways to kind of like drill into the tree to see if the infection's taken root. If it does, they will harvest the resin impregnated wood mm-hmm. and then they will either burn it either in an incense or or just as a raw wood on a coal, or they'll do a steam distillation of the wood and then essentially make a an oil. So is it wood the same as bahur? I'm saying it wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah, bahur. So bahur is an Arabic term. It's like an incense blend or mix. A lot of times bahur in the Arab world will have oud as an ingredient in it. But it'll also have other things as well. Got it. You know, for example, rudimentary um, sells a blend that's made from aloes wood, but we also have things like camphor in it or musk in it, right? Other things. Um, that's the um, Kyoto soul. Oh, yeah. So so if I understand you correctly, oud can be bahur, but all bahur is not oud. Correct. Okay. Yep. Okay. You nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> Thank you. And Kyoto soul. So you said there's there's oud, there's... Kampfer, um Yeah, th- th- that was inspired by a trip Sam and I took maybe seven or eight years ago to Kyoto to go study incense making. Oh, cool. Sama really came up with the blend. And, you know, we had the, just these incredible notes because the Japanese use oud a lot, particularly for Buddhist rituals. There's, you know, oud is connected with a lot of different spiritual traditions as well. Mm-hmm. The the species is native to Southeast Asia. So Sri Lanka, parts of India, specifically Assam region into Burma, all stretching all the way down Southeast Asia into Indonesia. Mm-hmm. That's where the species grows and is from. So all oud, all aloes wood comes from this region. It doesn't come from Qatar, for example. It doesn't come from Saudi Arabia, for example. It doesn't come from Turkey or from Japan. Right. All of the oud in those countries is imported from Southeast Asia. So contextually, oud has been used for millennia. It's referenced in the Bible. It's referenced in Buddhist texts and rituals. It's referenced in the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, which are known as hadith. Mm-hmm. And it's used in a ritual setting in many different wisdom traditions in the world. Mm-hmm. Aloe's wood is 
often been thought to dispel negative energies in spaces. Hmm. It's been used to, um, it's hard to talk about the metaphysical with physical words, but it's like almost right. to create a, like an aura, right. a, a protective aura by the scent. And the way that it's often used in perfuming or in this ritualistic way, for example, in the Arab world, which we saw when we were on our, you know, on the delegation, mm -hmm. for example, we were guests at someone's home, right? What was the first thing you noticed when we walked into the home? Burning oud? Yes. Well, burning incense. Yes. Right? They're burning either bakor or oud to greet their guests as they're coming into the home. Yeah. Then the rounds of coffee come, Yeah. rounds of tea come. Another round of oud comes. And it comes, literally, it's blown into everybody's sort of environment one by one. Yes. It goes around the circle. Exactly. There's this physical and metaphysical realities to perfume in general, mm -hmm. but oud is particularly prized in the Arab world for that, for, for welcoming people um, and for creating a culture, essentially. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you this. You know this. Of your work is said, you know, so much culture is based around taste or art that we see, that we view with the eyes or music, different types of recitations. Mm -hmm. But then we can access scent mm -hmm. as this other way of deepening our culture, deepening our experiences. Yeah. And so segueing a little bit to our time in Doha, you know, you and I had the opportunity or I had the pleasure, I should say, the opportunity of observing you uh, buying some musk at a shop. Yeah, yeah. Before that, I remember we were walking around the shopping mall and there's all this incense burners in front of the shops in the shopping mall, right? Yeah. There was a distinctive appreciation and engagement with scent that, that I thought was fascinating. Do you feel like that's something that was distinctive to Qatar? I have, you know, I've traveled to the Gulf region multiple times. Um, I do think in my experience that the Gulf has a particular fondness for particularly oud, aloes wood, and bahor and perfumes that are derivatives of aloes wood. Mm. It's kind of ironic because in places like Thailand or Indonesia, even Thai Muslims or Indonesian Muslims, for example, generally don't burn oud. Huh. They wear perfume. Right. They, they may burn um, incense or different types of bahor, but they're not kind of like oud connoisseurs. Mm. And I think this is a direct connection with Islam's relationship with aloes wood. The revelation came to the prophet in the Arab region, right, in the Gulf region. So I do think that there is kind of a deeper, again, metaphysical connection that the people of that region have with aloes wood that maybe they don't even have in the countries where the actual plant or the tree grows. So, Micah, we, as I mentioned already, we we had the opportunity to do a little shopping for some aromatic materials. And I recorded a little bit of a, an audio snippet of our time buying musk together in a mall in Qatar. Do you remember that that um, that experience buying that musk? And, I do and... I, very well. So what do you remember about that? What was memorable about it for you? So this was a musk that I had many years ago that we sold briefly. But as you know, in the perfume world, especially with organic products, the stock dries up. Right. And it's like, you've got to look elsewhere for a new stock and the new stock isn't the same as the old stock. So we kind of fell into that with this one particular musk. 
part of my real intention was like, if I'm going to go shopping in Doha, I'm finding this Musk. Right. You know, I went to the mall several times, looking at all these shops, trying things. Finally, I found this one shop and the guy had three different Musks in it. I think you remember, right? There was yeah. a regular one, there was a Nepali, and then there was a Tibetan one. Yes. And I bought a bunch of them. And I already went through a couple bottles. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's really addicting stuff. Yeah. So that was the first meaningful thing for me as I was able to find this kind of holy grail that I had been looking for for many years. Yeah. I think secondly, you know, it was nice to be able to go with you and to just kind of go into the shop and play around with the scents and see what we liked and and also get your kind of take and opinion on what the musk was. And I'm curious, like, have you spent any time with that, with either one of those? Yeah, I definitely, I had. And if I recall correctly, it's been a minute, so I'll have to go back and re-smell. But if I recall correctly, you and I both kind of flipped out over the, um, was it the Tibetan? There was the Saudi one, the Tibetan and the Nepali, right? Yes, yes. So there was the gazelle, which I think was Arabian, and then the Nepali one. And then the Tibetan one. The Tibetan one I had never smelled before. Yeah. I mean, all the musks, obviously, they have an animalic quality to them, like a kind yes. of a dirty funk yeah. <laughs> to them, um, which some people find they, it's not their thing. Yeah. But for me, it's, it is a thing. Animalic notes are also present in oud. Yes. There's, sometimes they'll talk about oud and one of the notes that they'll use, even going as far as saying like a barnyard note or even a fecal note. Yeah, or like a wet sock note. Yep, wet sock note, blue cheese note, all these notes that most people who maybe even listening to this are going to be like, whoa, it's a little crazy. The question I have for you also is why why was it so hard for you to find these musks here here living in, in California as you do? We're falling down these rabbit holes of scent. And I think certain scent cultures are not known. Yeah. And often when we don't know something, we can be hesitant to understanding it or learning it. So I think with with oud, for example, you know, most people in this country probably have no idea what oud is. Right. Of course, this has been shifting. Anyone who has their finger on any type of pulse around major perfumers in the West know that everybody's making oud now. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of a lot of those roots personally, because I, I find that first, my belief is a lot of it is probably synthetic because things have to be uniform and oud is not a uniform scent. Yeah. So many of these major perfumers, they have to have some sort of like uniform quality to their products. I think the main question was focused around musk. Like why is musk a challenging scent to find? I think it's because it's a challenging scent. Right. Period. Period. Right. Again, these animalic notes, they're challenging. You know, I, I'm a musician. So I think in terms of like listening to music, if you listen to jazz, yeah, somebody can easily listen to maybe a mid 50s Miles Davis album, but they're not going to feel the same way about some free jazz album. It can be a challenge to listen to certain types of music. I think the same is true with perfume. Yeah. As someone who's fallen down those rabbit holes of these more challenging scents, they've become second nature to me. But I think to the average person, um, I just don't think there's a demand for musk. And there's also ethical considerations around musk too. It's just how is it harvested? Is it you know are are they killing animals? Like are how are they getting the musk, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same goes with oud too, and environmental issues. Yeah, trees getting chopped down and people not finding the oud. The good news is there's been an increasing amount of farmed woods. Mm. They're starting to figure out how to actually begin the infection process 
in the tree. Then they leave the tree for six months. They come back to the tree and they find that the infection has started. Now, five years ago, when I was burning farmed wood or we were purchasing farmed wood to sell, it was at the bottom of my list in terms of quality. That has shifted dramatically in the last couple of years, and I foresee that it's going to continue to shift. It's hopeful. Okay, well, that's so that's cool. So they're sort of controlling the production and therefore maybe impacting the environment less harmfully. Yep. But I wanted to sort of close it out with just getting back a little bit to Qatar. If there was anything that you thought was particularly important or memorable or impactful for you that you want to share with people? I, I think the one thing, it sounds a little cliche, but I'm taking the people the relationships with you, for example, and different people that I, you know, I met on the on the delegation has been really important and meaningful to me. And I think, secondly, for sure, the Musk. I mean, that's one <laughs> thing I came back with that I was like, that was a win. Yeah, and and just a, a real appreciation, a deepened appreciation for their appreciation of the scent. I just love how they love scent. That was Micah Anderson, co-founder of Udimentary. As we mentioned in the chat, Micah and I had the opportunity to spend a little time buying musk oil in Qatar, which I had the presence of mind to record. So let's travel via the magic of audio to a shopping mall, a huge one, in the center of Doha. Well, the shopping mall is quite a scene here. It's pretty hopping. And it seems to be divided into little sections. So one section is for jewelry. A whole section is devoted to perfume, which you're getting are local shops. And you can tell that you're coming near them because what you start to notice in the mall is the thick smell of incense, of oud, and of other incense smells that start to really permeate the air, which is pretty uncommon. I think it's safe to say in American malls, for instance, where people would complain probably about the smoke. I'm walking up to a shop that says in big white writing, Abdul Samad al-Qurashi, and then in Arabic, the same. There's a oud burner right in front of the shop, and it's a big, spacious space with a lot of light. Raw materials are lined up against the wall in these beautiful bottles. One's cobalt blue, one's sort of more of a turquoise, then there's a whole set of red one, purple ones, and, and so on, beautifully lit. And they're all labeled with little stickers in Arabic that list the different types of materials. Here they sell things not in milliliters or ounces, but in tolas. And then one tola is roughly equivalent to 12 milliliters. And I'm here with my friend Micah from Udumentary buying some musk. What is your name? Mahmoud. Mahmoud. Mashallah. My name is Micah. Nice. It's nice to meet you, Mahmoud. Thank you, sir. That one, Kashmir. Thank you, sir. And this one is? This is the Saudi. Saudi. Yeah. yeah. Saudi. Yeah. And that one, Nepal. Nepal. Very Kashmir, strong. Saudi, Nepal. Oh, Nepal, amazing. Very strong, yeah. Wow. Amazing. And Tibet. Tibet, okay. So what are we smelling here? We're smelling musk. Musk. Like gazelle musk? Gazelle? Yeah. All gazelle. Yeah, all gazelle. Oh. Do you have deer musk here? Like that traditional? One is deer musk. Oh, gazelle. Yeah. Oh, so gazelle is... Yeah. Yeah. I see. Okay. Thank you. Tell me about the Tibet one. It smells like almost oud a little bit. There's a oud note in the beginning of it. Is there any oud in it? No, that is pure. This is really, because you can't buy this in the States, huh? No. Yeah. 
because these deer, these gazelles get a. Yeah, I've been waiting day. to come into one of these stores for 10 years. So yeah, just have to come back into the Arab world, you know, get it. First, when it went on, it was like, it's just, there's it's almost had an oud note to it. Oh, and the Nepali one is yeah. very strong. I mean, that's the one that I was saying, it, it's, it just keeps going and going. Look what else they have here. I mean, look at all these beautiful bottles. Yeah, gorgeous, right? I love it how they have the little, um, like the pourer at the bottom. Yeah, a little spigot. Because that's one thing about these. What do you see in port from the thing? It's like so thick, hairy. Like just trying to pour it Get into it in the small the bottle. I can only imagine. How much is a quarter tola of each musk? That one, the first one in Saudi, one thousand two hundred for a quarter tola. And Sibet, no tola. For a tola. Yeah, okay. for full tola. That size. That one is half. Half tola. That is a quarter. Quarter, yeah. Sibet, three thousand five hundred for a tola. In Nepal, five thousand. Okay. But now offer, no? Mm. 50%. Yeah? Could I do quarter cholas? Which one? All three. Quarter, quarter, quarter. Mm -hmm. Take half better, I will give you 50%. Quarter maybe take 15% and 13%. Mm. You take tola, nice 50%. 50%? 50%? 5 0? Yeah. yeah. Uh, half, half, half. 2725. So let me do the math. One second, I have to do the calculations. Take care. Thank you. You need water? Uh, no. You need water? Thank you. I'm okay. Thank no, you, I'm sir. Okay. Thank, you. Thank you. So we spend some time smelling and then we negotiate. Negotiation typically goes along the lines of here's your regular cost and here's your discount cost. And the discount is sort of presumed to happen. And from there, you try to go a little bit lower or you relent if you're me and just go with what seems reasonable. He's crunching some numbers. You know, obviously, the more the, the larger size you get, the more discount you get. Yeah. That's why. So I got a half. I bought a half tola yeah. for one sixty-five, and I got a free half tola. So I basically got a whole tola for one sixty-five. Yeah, which is that size. Yeah, know? that's. But good. I got them in two. I got them in two halves. I got two of these. Uh, half, half, half. Yeah. Okay. Two thousand as I watched and hung out, Mahmoud showed Micah variations of musk from different places and also products like oud and civet and some other things besides. In the end, we both ended up buying some tolas. Well, I bought quarter tolas and mine came to about 1,400 Atari Rials, which was about $385. So definitely not cheap, but hey, it was more expensive for the deer. Commerce is an important part of perfumery and has been for millennia. Aromatic materials have been traded along the Silk Road, the Spice Road, the Incense Road, and a gazillion other roads, literal and metaphorical, through time. Today's perfume industry in Qatar is linked to the international market in very obvious ways. Shops carry the brands from abroad here as they do in any other country. However, Qatar is also linked to a more regional market that presents a different set of values on aromatic forms that I've encountered in, say, Europe or North America. Here to tell us a bit more about local perfume production in Qatar is perfumer and IAO board member Rabia Chowdhury. Rabia is a Pakistani-Canadian perfumer who moved to California in 2016. She's on the board of directors at the Institute for Art and Olfaction, and she was one of the delegates on our trip to Qatar. She joined me from her home in LA, and I particularly wanted to talk to her about the various perfume companies we had the chance to visit in Qatar. But first, Rabia had something to say. 
before I get into the whole delegation visit, I wanted to quickly do a shout out to Cake for allowing this trip to happen. And it was an honor for me to be there and get familiarized with what we're going to talk about today. Shout out to Cake. Shout out to Cake. So, um, Rabia, we were together in Qatar, what, back in March. And while we were there, we were invited to meet some people who worked in perfume production. So let's start with the perfume factory. Would you tell us a little bit about what the perfume factory is? Yes. Yeah, so the perfume factory with the owner, Mamad Al-Matwi, it was founded in 2018. So even though it's young, it has so much of a large presence in Qatar. But it's a compounding area where you can go in and they have their own consulting services, white label services, and their fragrances. They have over 300 type of fragrances currently out now. And even though they were in fine fragrances, when COVID hit, they kind of did a switch and got into sanitary products instead. The scent that they have typically compared to the U.S., um, I mean, U.S., it was more medicinal, whereas there, there was a little bit of floral or woodsy elements hmm. and they work with large uh when we talk about other folks as well in qatar like some of the businesses in qatar that we met with their white label was popular but their largest growth is through their sanitary products and then as you recall throughout qatar their products were at every restaurant every hotel every lobby recognized their scents that they had because their scents were so unique i, I recall them um, saying that they source their materials from europe but they bring in that cultural aspect of what the people enjoy there. They put those elements in there. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember us talking to, about that after we visited them, that that we saw hand sanitizing products that were distinctly different from an olfactory perspective to what we saw in the States. Like, I think there was one with like, oud, or am I crazy? Yes, there was one with oud. My favorite I remember was fig. Fig really stood out for me. Yeah. It's funny. It's just, it's just, different approach to scent because here everybody's trying to get the scent off their hands and they're, they're like, let's embrace it, you know? Yeah. It was, and, it, and then I was surprised that it wasn't too overwhelming either. Yeah. Um, it, it was light. And I, I recently read as well that they're um, planning on expanding into um, the European markets. Oh, cool. We also met with a perfumer called Abdullah Al-Abdullah, who is also an influencer, I should say. And we met him at the, I think it was the Pantal or something, one of those French department stores. It was at the Galerie Lafayette. That's right. And now it's owned by the Qatari government. That makes sense. So what struck you as notable about Abdullah Al-Abdullah's work? All the elements that he brought into his line had touches of Qatari culture. His scents also were quite unique. He had one scent that had the white packaging that was more for daytime wear. And then he had a nighttime wear one that was a little bit heavier that had food elements to it. Mm-hmm. Here in North America, when I was exploring Ula, I would find some of the scents being heavy, but they use Ula in a way that it's light and transparent. Um, it was really cool to see. And then when I looked him up further, I'm like, oh, I saw that he's a public figure and he's got a great following and his fragrances are very reputable. So that was pretty cool that we had a chance to meet him up close. If you go on his Instagram, and he's the only one who has the handle, I think it's at Abdullah. Oh, wow. That's awesome. He was one of the first on IG, being one of the first influencers um, on Qatar. But you'll see his pictures of him and his amazing. He's got great fashion. So speaking of fashion, one of the highlights for me, and I know for you, because we talked about it, was when we visited uh, Amina, who's the owner of Jivana, uh, the the company that she runs uh, in Qatar. And there she gave us sort of a personal experience of her perfume making process. And also we went through this like absolutely bananas extravaganza of looking at clothing. Oh, yes. <laughs> Would you tell us a little bit about that experience we had there at, at, at her home? They were so amazing. I've never seen the type of hospitality. I think we had maybe three rounds of tea and different coffees and desserts. And um, 
She talked about her story of how she started out her fragrances. I remember her saying that she studied fragrances in France and she went about how she came up with a branding idea. And then she shared the fragrances she had there as well. I think the biggest thing for me is how hospital they were. And like you were saying about how they brought their, you know, some of her clothes out for us to try. And her husband also shared what some of the men, what they wear in, um, in their Qatari culture. I enjoyed her fragrances, but also some of the rituals that they shared when they burned the oud to let it embrace the clothes. Do you remember that ritual that they had where her husband lit up the oud underneath the clothes and let it absorb, you know, that was a, that was really cool to see Mm -hmm. her fragrances it was refreshing to see someone from the east translating european fragrances and making it her own totally and still adding those elements i i thought that was cool because typically when you see east saint laurent that they'll have something special geared towards the eastern market yeah but this was reverse where she studied european and north american markets but she still brought elements of the east with her musk. Yeah. I have one of her musks here in front of me and it's really beautiful and powdery. It's not overwhelming. So she has a global look, but from the eye of the East. I and mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that was cool. And it was really interesting to see sort of, like you said, that narrative sort of inversed, you know, where it's not like, here's our finest oud for the Gulf States from a French company, but here's a woman in the Gulf States who's like, actually, here's what I want to put out. She was, I mean, I dare I say, she, uh, that woman was a boss. Oh, she was. We also went by a shop owned by another very charming human being called Ashraf Abuisa, where we chatted about the fragrance industry and also from his perspective as a, as a company, a store owner. So do you want to share a little bit about that experience as well? It was a real privilege, I think, to meet Ashraf Abuisa. So he's known as a businessman in um, Qatar. And just as you mentioned, he owns a store, uh, Blue Salon. It's a luxury store that was founded in 1981. He was one of the founders that gave visibility to the international fragrance industry by supplying or bringing in fragrances from European markets and making it accessible to his country. Mm. Going through his department store, as we saw, you would find brands such as uh, Tamin, Nasimato, YSL, Chanel. And then we also learned when he was talking about the, the landscape of the fragrance industry that he also works as a consultant for Gallery Lafayette. He helped them organized setting up their fragrance department. That was pretty cool. That's right. And his whole family. The next day we met up with his sister. She owns the fragrance shop Secret Notes. Mm -hmm. She also has her fragrance museum. So it seems like the family's all in the fragrance industry and making it accessible for others. And you're, of course, talking about the delightful Reem Abuisa. Yes, that's right, Reem. What a charming, charming human. Yeah. So overall, I mean, Ravia, taking a bit of a bird's eye view, did you notice a big difference between, you know, your experiences meeting with Ashraf Abuisa and Jivan, Jivana, Abdullah, Labdullah, and the perfume factory? Did you notice a big difference between those experiences and then your experience walking through and buying perfume at the souk? Did you feel like these were two different industries within Qatar, or do you feel like they were related in some way? When I take a step back, And I look at, similar to North America, just looking at the diversity that's available here, you can go anywhere from like an artisan market to a luxury brand store, such as Blue Salon or the Gallery Lafayette. Mm -hmm. Even though the country has a smaller population, it's not even comparable to the U.S. Mm -hmm. They have such a diverse industry that's accessible. You can go to the souk and you have access to artisan fragrances. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the businesses in that in the souk 
were owned by South Asians or run by South Asians. And a lot of the materials came from their countries as well. But then you had also the middle where you would go into when we were at the mall, brands like Abdul Sandal Qureshi, you remember, we got our musks from there as well. I picked up some Bahur from this place called Ajmal. And then remember, after seeing uh, Mamad Al-Matri from Perfume Factory, there was a whole convention yes. from the Asian continent, um, from soft perfumes to really pungent, strong oud chips and that. So we picked the material from there. Mm-hmm. And then you have the luxury market presented by some people such as um, Ashraf and Muhammad Al-Matwi and them and Reem and them that there's accessible. But I remember, I recall Ashraf also saying that they're so diverse and because of the laws and immigration and whatnot, they don't overdo it in regards to um, the decor in their shop and whatnot. They mm-hmm. just focus on quality fragrances because they don't know if they're going to be there for two to five years from now. So um, oh, yeah. they just ensure that, you know, here's the beautiful products that we have access. And that's why you see them at the souk and at the malls versus in the bigger department stores. Something that also stood out to me, for example, here at the malls, typically the kiosks in the mall usually will have jewelry and whatnot over there. They had fragrances from all over the world. And some of them were very synthetic or copycats, and some were actually very good if you gave them a chance. Mm-hmm. The marketing here in North America, you can tell that, okay, this is a luxury line. But you don't know when you're in that souk, you, you walk into that little shop that they're carrying a very high luxury product themselves as well, that before you're buying, you, like you need to have a nose. Yeah. And that to me speaks to a little bit of a fluency and scent that that I definitely noticed. And I know you noticed in Qatar where where. The, the marketing tells aren't as obvious as they were, at least at least to me as, a, as somebody who's not from there, you know, but the nose, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but the nose knows what's good. And you could just, like you just said, notice things that were fantastic, even when the, the marketing tells weren't necessarily signaling that this was something that was high value. 100%. You got it right there, nose on the nose. <laughs> I love that. Oh, Lordy. So, Ravia, just to sort of close it out, if there's one takeaway from your time in Qatar that you want to share with people, what, what, what would it be? My one takeaway is that I wasn't expecting the country to be so diverse. When I was there, I found myself speaking my family's language and having access to unique experiences and food and culture that I wouldn't have in North America. Even though it's small, the diversity and what you have access to, it's still there. That was Rabia Chowdhury, perfumer and board member at the Institute for Art and Olfaction. Our last guest on this episode of Perfume on the Radio is Regina Mamou. Regina is an Iraqi-Polish artist living in Los Angeles who works at the intersection of installation, performance, video, and research. She was the recipient of a Fulbright to Jordan, and in addition to her solo practice, Regina collaborates intermittently with Laura Salman as research for the Bermuda Triangle. Regina also has traveled extensively in the Arab Gulf region, and it's with that in mind that I started our chat asking Regina how she related to being in Qatar and what she found most interesting. One of the things that I found particularly interesting was Qatar's relationship to its history. I think we were in the education city. Yeah. Where we saw, I think, a 60-year-old part of the city. I think it was a, a mosque next to the the brand new mosque that we went in, which is like, you know, that soaring, amazing looking, futuristic mosque. Yeah. It was just really incredible to see what a difference 60 years makes. Yeah. 
it was just an interesting reminder that there's a good reason to to like preserve the history of the city because so much has changed in such a short amount of time. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you recall we were being guided by um, a man called Mohammed, who was the guide at the Botanic Garden. And I remember, and he's Egyptian. And I remember he was showing us this sort of, you know, historical site. And I remember noticing this little glint in his eye. And I was like, you know, 60 years, you know, for an Egyptian, it's such recent history, but the change is so extravagant. Exactly. Exactly. As Americans, we're used to going to places where When we travel to Europe, for example, you know, 200, 300 years is really old for us. But in Europe, that's nothing. Now we're going to a place where 60 years is is relatively old. Totally. Uh, It made me feel like I was from an old culture. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, so so to that end, you know, a lot of the folks in Qatar were not from Qatar, as as I'm sure you noticed. I, I know we both noticed. Yes. So and then, of course, here in the States, you know, we're also mostly, I mean, we are a country of immigrants, barring, of course, the the Native Americans. So I'm curious a little bit, you know, given all that, how you witnessed and experienced or even projected your experience of, of immigration in Qatar. Having spent a lot of time in the Middle East, I wasn't surprised that there were a lot of immigrants in Qatar because just in general, the region often has a lot of people from all different places coming in and out of the areas. I I do feel like that's fairly common. Mm -hmm. But I did notice there was a lot more of a melting pot, I think, in Qatar in general. We talked to a lot of different people that were from many different countries, that were from many different um, social classes. It's interesting just to think about how people might be dealing with multiple experiences. And I think it's important to remember that within a country such as Qatar and also within the U.S. It made me want to research and be more aware of those types of experiences and being more of a conscious social traveler. Yeah, I I had a similar response, I think, to you. First of all, there's lots of stories around Qatar, especially after the World Cup. You know, we all we've all heard them. And so I was doing my best not to let that impact my perception of, of the country while not totally disregarding the fact that there might be some tricky dynamics at play. Exactly. It's like you you don't know unless you've been somewhere. And even when you've been somewhere once, that's not enough. You have to really spend a lot of time in a place to really get to know and understand culturally and socially what a place is like. I think it's important not to make fast judgments about places that you're traveling to. Right. Cultures aren't monolithic, you know? You can't say one culture is like this or one nationality is like this, you know. So I think it's important to be open minded in that respect. On a slightly different topic, Regina, you're an artist. That's how that's how we've met originally. And a lot of your practice has involved tincturing materials, like, for instance, the work that you did tincturing materials from East Germany specifically, I believe. Uh, yeah, for a show at the Vanda Museum with Lara. With Lara Salmon. Yes. Did Qatar provide these sorts of materials or any materials of note that you took forward in this practice that you have or you thought about in the context of this practice? Yes. At first, I wasn't sure which inorganic materials I might use because for tincturing, I like to use experimental materials that are inorganic. You know, we went to the Quranic Gardens, for example. We did a lot with organic materials and, you know, plants and things of that nature. And so I I was thinking really, like, what would be great materials to use that would be outside of the scope? Right. Having used a lot of 
inorganic materials within the East German project called Common Fantasy. Now I had to think within this kind of framework, which is which inorganic materials are best to tincture that would elicit the most amount of fragrance. Right. So some of these materials that I've already begun to think about are things like fabric because they retain odors, for example. We also receive things as gifts, for example, like wax or hand wipes, things like that, that have scent in them. I think I'm going to be playing around with these types of materials. So I have to be creative with the gifts and the things that I sort of picked up along the way and kind of go back and really think about ways that I can extract scent from these materials. And they may not be just from putting them in the dropping funnel. Like I may have to do different things to them. I may have to crush it. I may have to rip it. I may have to burn it. So a lot of this is just being creative about how to work with the material to get it to extract the scent that I needed to. It's interesting because a lot of your practice has to do with sort of capturing these impressions of space and and time um, or memory, I suppose, through the materiality. And, And for instance, I know for the Common Fantasy Project, you guys had things like ceiling tiles. And objects that work in the everyday lived experience of, of folks from, from the location. So I guess the question is, is, is it challenging for you to try to capture space in this way or memory? Yes, it definitely is challenging. You know, it's not hard to find materials that remind us of, of a certain place that we've been to. But I think it's really difficult to find those materials that will then be used in the tincturing process and elicit a fragrance that people can actually um, perceive. Exactly. Because the drink process can be, especially when you're using it so much as a purist, it can be so light that it's hard for people to even smell it. Right. You do really have to think outside of the, I mean, you know, the, as a cliche goes, you really have to think outside the box in terms of how do I work with these materials to really capture the experience that I've had in a unique way, but still maintain a sense of like the experience that I've had. And also be able to communicate that in some way, of course, right? Exactly. It's tricky because you're playing in the space of memory and lived experience, which is both hyper subjective, but also something we all share. Exactly. And the thing with this is that it may not exactly resemble the experience that I want it to convey, just because of the process of tincturing. And I think that the process of tincturing can really limit the type of smell that I'm able to capture. But that kind of limitations are the kind of limitations that I like to work within. Sometimes when you're given all the tools in the box, so to speak, I think it can be overwhelming. Sometimes where I work the best, especially when um, Laura and I have done a lot of collaborations, we've worked the best when we've had a lot of limitations on the projects that we've made especially within tincturing, because there are a lot of technical limitations. I think that's where we've been able to do a lot of interesting work. Awesome. I look forward to seeing the result and and seeing what you end up choosing. So watch the space, everybody. (laughs) On a slightly different topic, but related, we visited some art spaces in Doha. In particular, one that stuck in my mind was this space called Liwan, which was this art center in an old school. 
Uh, and I'm wondering, did you feel some familiarity with with how folks were working there? Like, did you encounter any art practices or people who you you felt like, okay, I I I get this, like I understand this particular practice, or I can relate to this particular approach? Yes, Luan was a really great experience to go to because I think this was one example where we were seeing an older building. I believe it was the first girls' school. Yeah, yeah, within Doha that had been preserved and then was used to create this kind of artist residency space and also co-working space where designers and ceramicists and leather designers and t-shirt designers could basically have spaces where they could make their work. And I think this is a perfect way to encourage a creative community to come together. But I thought it was very interesting that they were trying to preserve, well, they they did an amazing job of preserving this building. So for one thing, they preserved a piece of architecture. And it was interesting to see how different this piece of architecture was compared to, you know, a lot of the things that we've seen downtown with like the soaring skyscrapers and things like this. This is definitely a humble building, you know, with only two stories and a courtyard in the middle, though it was very, very beautiful. Yeah. They also preserved a lot of the elements from the classroom, you know, like a globe or like feature material. So it was interesting to see that. So I felt like that was a very unique thing that I had never seen before. And I thought it was really special that this was headed by a younger generation. Mm. You know, I think it's important that the younger generation there in Doha is spearheading this commitment to recognizing that the older part of the city should be preserved. Yeah. And their history, you know, should be preserved as well. And again, it's only like a lot of the city being brand new within the last 25 years. So a lot of the younger generation being in their like mid 30s, for example, are watching their history being erased in some way. To me, that was that was new. And I thought that was fascinating. I was really glad that there was a space where people could come together and create community. Yeah, it seems like there's sort of a, a youthful uh, effort to preserve what is potentially lost in all this progress and modernism and sci-fi. I mean, it was very sci-fi. For sure. Closing out the chat, I'm curious if there was one, and not to be so reductive, but if there's one takeaway or one experience from Doha that you would want to share with with people, what, what would that experience be? I think the most important takeaway or experience from my time in Qatar was uh, when we went to someone's home where we got to talk with people and, you know, were served tea I think that was really special because being inside somebody's home and being inside someone's personal space is really different than being in the public space, especially within the Middle East. Right. That's what I would want to share with people is my time getting to know the family and getting time to, you know, see how people use, for example, the the scent of oud how people burn the oud within their home and how scent plays such a huge role within the household. Yeah, same. Uh, and it was, and what a scent it was. It was quite potent, wasn't it? Oh, yes, it was. It's very different from being within a typical American space. Uh, 100%. It like blows the Yankee candle out of the water. Exactly. That was Regina Mamu, an Iraqi Polish artist living in Los Angeles. For the record, my takeaway from the trip was a very small moment. I was with Rabia, Regina, and our host Layla, hi Layla, as they were buying some jewelry in a market. I stepped outside and I saw a guy walking down the street holding a big bag, 
What was fascinating was that he was being followed down the street by this astounding amount of cats. I was super surprised that one of the people on the street noticed this and explained that this guy fed the cats every evening. That's what was in the bag. Sure enough, he started to pour the food in little piles. Each cat got its own pile. It was very sweet. And the cats, of course, rejoiced. It was a lovely and small moment, one of those moments in which you witness a bit of kindness and it leaves you feeling warm and hopeful. For photos of our trip, including some of the preserved architecture and the arts center Liwan, and for a photo of the guy feeding his cats, check out perfumeontheradio.com. This has been the latest episode of Perfume on the Radio, where we took you on a trip to Doha and spared you the 15-hour plane ride. We need to thank Qatar America Institute for Culture, specifically Fatima Dasari, Leila Jadala, Lindsay Medlin, and the rest of the team for giving us the opportunity to learn about and to visit this amazing country of Qatar. Perfume on the Radio is presented by the Institute for Art and Olfaction. We are a nonprofit devoted to experimentation and access in the field of perfumery. You can learn more about us and all our activities at artandolfaction.com. As always, this episode will be archived on a podcast provider of your choice, as well as on our website, perfumeontheradio.com. If you like what you heard, do us a solid and give us a nice review. It actually really, really helps. Audio IDs for the show were provided by the lovely Maxwell Williams, the talented Darian Zahedi, and the inventive Emmett James. My name is Saskia Wilson-Brown, and I've enjoyed hosting this episode, as I always do. We'll release another episode sometime soon, but until then, my friends, keep it kind, keep it real, and keep it aromatic. Smells good, ma. Make any space the space. Whiffers. Just can't shake that nose. Nostalgia? Give us a call at 1-800-SOMEONE'S-GOT-YOUR-NOSE. Won't you get a whiff of that? Do you suffer from scent? Aesthesia? Perfume on the radio.